You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. We're um, in Genesis chapter 44, and while you're turning there, I, I too, that's one of my favorite hymns. You all know the story of Horatio Spafford and how he lost his three daughters at sea and Uh, He got on a ship and went and asked the captain of the ship to stop where the little girls went down. His wife made it. She was saved and she got to, uh, I think it was England. Some folks say France, but I think it was England where she uh, got to and wired back, sent a telegram and, and with just these words, saved alone. And he found out that his three little girls had uh, died uh, at sea. And so he they stopped the boat and he wrote that hymn out there. Uh, that's where he wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And what you don't know about Horatio Spafford is this. He was a lawyer in Chicago. And his home, the home that they lived in and his law office burned when Miss O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern and started what we call the Great Chicago Fire. The other thing is this, is after this horrific event of losing those little girls, he and his wife had a little boy. And they had a little boy, and um, at three years of age, the little boy died of typhoid fever. And uh, when that happened, the church that they were a member of called them in and said, we don't know what sin is going on in your life so that all this would happen to you, but we're going to church you. We're going to disfellowship you and put you out of the church because of all the sin that must be in your life for all these things happening to you. Now, there you go. Do you know what happened to them? They went to Israel. They went to Jerusalem and they started an orphanage there. And in Israel today, in Jerusalem, every time I go to Israel, I will take off and go over. I'll take Debbie over and we will go to the American colony started by Horatio Spafford and his wife to minister to the Jewish and the Palestinian children that were there. There were some Jewish children at the time there, uh, mainly Palestinian children. And it's the only place in Jerusalem where you can get a ham sandwich. So I go, I've had, I've had the break from bacon that I could take and I have to go and get my ration of bacon. So anyway, uh, Genesis chapter 44, Genesis 44, Chuck Colson was a fascinating fella. His pastor was here a few weeks ago. Uh, of course, Colson is dead now, but his pastor, uh, and his wife were here, good friends of ours. And, um, Colson told the story. I remember the first time I ever met Chuck Colson was in an elevator. And I was standing in the back of an elevator, and all of these people got on, and Chuck Colson got on. And, of course, everybody was talking to Colson, saying, oh, you know, hey, we've read your books, we've read your books, we've, you know, all this kind of stuff. And he kind of looked at me, because I'm just standing there looking uh, at Chuck Colson, and, uh, and it was kind of like, well, what about you, buddy? And I said, I've not only read your books, I'm a Baptist preacher, I've used every one of your illustrations. Um, so I'm going to use an illustration by Chuck Colson tonight. 
Colson, in his book, Loving God, tells about being at the Delaware State Penitentiary to speak. He said he was sitting up on the platform there. Uh, thousands of these inmates that were, would listen to him speak that night, uh, I think several different times. And he says as he sat there, he began to think back on his life. And he thought about his life. Thought about where he'd grown up. I think he grew up around Boston. I think that's where he's from. Went to Brown University, graduate of George Washington, uh, of Washington Law School. And um, he said, I, th- I started to think about all the accomplishments, all the things that I'd won, all of the trophies that I'd won in high school, all of the things that I uh, got, all of the awards that I won in college and law school, all of the scholarships that had been awarded to me, given to me, goes into the Marines, becomes a captain in the Marines, and becomes the assistant to the Secretary of Navy. Uh, Of course, he goes to law school, comes out of law school, highly successful lawyer, gets involved with the Nixon administration and becomes special counsel to the president of the United States, flying all over the world, Air Force One, in and out of the White House constantly. Um, Just a life that you, you know, you just kind of see on television or you think about from time to time. And he said, as I sat there and I thought about that, he said, that was not the thing that got me. Uh, to speak to inmates at the Delaware State Penitentiary. In fact, listen to what he said. It was not my success God used to enable me to help those in prison. All my achievements meant nothing in God's economy. Uh, n- not not the, 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 the regal legacy of my life was now my biggest failure. Now listen to what he just said. He said the great legacy of my life was my biggest failure. And what was that? I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation being sent to prison was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. God sometimes has to break us before God can ever use us. That's what you're going to see in chapter 44. 44, uh, really I'm going to back it up to verse 34 of chapter 43, and we're going to kind of begin there in the end of verse 43, or or chapter 43 and verse 34. Uh, You've got these brothers that are back now in Egypt for the second time. The first time they were there, pretty frightful situation. They were accused by the ruler of being spies. Um, one of them were, happened to be detained, put in prison uh, until the others would come back and they had to bring their youngest brother uh, with them when they came. And so the first time they were there, pretty frightening. Now they come back the second time and the second time uh, they get there and they think, well, we're not real sure how this is going to go. So we're going to bring all of this money and we're going to bring all of these gifts And we're going to bring Benjamin, our youngest brother, with us. Uh, They finally go through all of this, uh, you know, distress with their father. Judah steps up. And you're going to see Judah begin to really uh, become a a, a guy that really is transformed right here. From what he was into something else. And you're going to begin to see some of that tonight. Next week, I'll get back to that. But Judah steps up and he looks at his father. You know, Reuben had already said this. Uh, But Jacob would not listen to Reuben because 
of what was going on in Reuben's life and what Reuben had done. So Judah steps forward and he says, listen to me, dad, I'm not going back down there. I'm not going to go back down there and put my life in jeopardy um, uh, because the, the man has told us what we're to do. We're to bring this youngest brother with us. And uh, the only way we're going to get food is if we're going to go down there. And the only way we're going down there is if we take Benjamin with us. So Jacob acquiesces. Judah steps forward. He begins to speak like a leader. And uh, he does lead these brothers. And it's pretty phenomenal the transformation that takes place in his life. Uh, But we're just going to have to hold on to that. So they're back down there now. And when they get there, bringing all these gifts, they thought this is going to make a difference. And so as soon as they get there, Joseph has told his steward, you bring them to the palace for lunch with me, for dinner with me. Well, when they hear that, they just, they just wig out. They just, they just are weirded out. They just fall apart over the whole thing. They think this guy is, this is a ploy. He's going to get us there. He's going to trap us there. He's going to do all, we're going to become his slaves. He's going to do all these things to us. All the way down, they thought to, he wants our donkeys. Now the ruler of Egypt wants, this is what he's doing. He wants these donkeys that we've got. That's how far-fetched they were thinking. And so what they do is they grab a steward and they just unload. Look, none of this was our fault. We didn't take the money back. We found the money in our bank, but we brought it back to you. We aren't wrong. You know, nothing, we did not do anything wrong. We're right. We're the most precious things you've ever seen in your life. And so that's what they were doing. They were talking so fast and trying to go through all of this, uh, but all Joseph wanted to do was to have a meal with them. And they're going to discover that. They're going to see that. But what I want you to see is this tonight. You need to understand that that God will allow you to go through a period of anguish in order to purge you of your pride. And he will purge you of your pride through confession and repentance. Did you get all of that? Now, let me, I'll I'll back up. I'll go slow and I'll say that again. God will allow you to go through periods of anguish in order to purge you from your pride. And he will purge you from your pride with confession and repentance. And that's where I'm headed to at the end of this. And I'm going to give you a couple of things there. So... Let me just begin in verse 34. It's kind of interesting what's going on here. Uh, It says at the end of verse 34 that they feasted and they drank freely with him. Um, They get in there. They discover, hey, this guy, really, we're, we're having a meal. We're in the palace of the ruler of Egypt, upper and lower Egypt. It's like going, it's like being invited personally into the White House. Uh, it's like going to a meal with the president of the United States and this guy gets up, the president gets up and serves you himself. I mean, no butler, no servant, no body that's uh, there to do all of that. He's doing it himself and you're sitting there and you're beginning to feel like, ah, things are working out. This is going well. He really is carried away with our charismatic personality. Uh, We feel like we've escaped all the harm. We feel like 
all the danger is really past. And so you begin to see all of this self-assurance, this self-reliance, this self-confidence, this pride begin to kind of well back up in these guys. Uh, They're sitting there in this place and uh, they're eating this meal with the ruler of Egypt. Nothing bad has happened to them. Simeon is back with them. Um, They've not said, he's not said anything about, you know, anything negative toward Benjamin or toward anybody else. And so they've, they've come to the place where they're feeling pretty cocky now. Things are going, there's no hint of the guilt that you read about that we've looked at back in chapter 42 and really in part of 43. No guilt anymore. That's all gone. Not feeling bad about what we've done in the past. Uh, No longer thinking about the things that they had done to Joseph. Although this is Joseph, they just don't know it. None of that is that they've not repented. Uh, there is no, there's no talk of repentance, no hint of repentance. This is, this is exactly what Paul is referring to. They've experienced what Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It is a sorrow without repentance. There is a repentance or a type of it that is not real repentance. That is just sorrow without repentance. We felt bad. We've been thrown in the prison here. Simeon was held down here. Uh, but now all of that's gone. No, no talk of guilt. No feeling bad about all of the things that had taken place. Well, after the feast, let me, let me tell you what he does. If you're there in chapter 44, we'll begin in verse 1. He commanded his house steward saying, fill the men's sacks with food. As much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Now watch what he does here. Put my cup, the silver cup, designated a specific cup, the silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. Now, what's he up to? Joseph is up to a couple of things here. One of the things that he's up to, look back to verse 34, back in chapter 43 again. Do you see right there where it says that he served Benjamin five times as much as he gave the others? What's he doing? Well, he's doing a couple of things here. Number one, he wants to see if they are as jealous of Benjamin as they were of him. Only two boys came from Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. And these two boys, you know, were the favorite of their dad. Dad played favorites in the home, which is a horrible, dangerous thing for a parent to do, to have a favorite. Terrible thing to do. And so he played favorites there. And um, he wanted to see. If I'm going to give him more food than I give the others, and I'm going to watch and see how they look at him, what they say, I'm going to listen to pick up what's going on when I do that. Uh, But they don't do anything, obviously. Uh, They don't do anything. They don't say anything. He doesn't pick up on anything. But there's something else now that's going on, and it's this. He wants to find out if there is a greed, a cupidity uh, that is still there in his brother. Are they still jealous? 
Are they still seething with jealousy? Do they still have this root of jealousy there? And do they still have this greed for money, for things? And so he says, I want you to do this. I want you to put my silver cup, the cup, the silver cup in the mouth of the sack. Do you notice that? It has the direct, it has the definite article there. The silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and as many for the grain and he did as Joseph told him to do. Well, he's, he's up to that, but these guys are impervious to it. They leave the next morning. They get up, verse 3, as soon as it was like, the men were sent away and they went with their donkeys. They get up. Now, you just got to picture this in your mind. They're heading out. They're going out of Egypt, headed back home, having eaten at the White House with the President of the United States. And um, they are on their way home with a story that nobody is ever going to believe. I can imagine they're talking, they're excited, they're pumped up, they're so happy. Simeon's with them, Benjamin's okay. They've got plenty of food, plenty of grain. They're headed back home and they're talking about, did you see this? Did you see that? Can you believe that we were there? All of this opulence that was there. They treated us like we were royalty. After Hey, we deserve it. After all this guy put us through, we deserve to be treated like this. He should have done something like this. I mean, they start patting themselves on the back, right? Man, oh man, you can just hear the conversation going on between these guys. Uh, no, no hint of Joseph, no talk of Joseph this time, no feelings of what has God found out about us, what have we done, you know, all of that, none of that going on. Just all this high five, we made it through. Have you ever been there? You ever had some sin in your life and you thought you were caught in that sin and and things happened around you that all of a sudden you realize I've not been caught. Nobody knows. It's okay. I'm not going to have to pay for this. I'm not going to have to suffer for this. And everything is all right. Well, let me tell you, whammy's coming. Whammy is right behind them. The steward waited until they got out of the city limit. And then Joseph said, okay, bud, time to go get him. And I can tell you, he didn't, he didn't ride out there on a camel by himself. He went out there, I am certain, with a military escort. He goes with palace guards. He goes with the personal retinue of the ruler of Egypt. And he gets out there to them. And they had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. Now, is there a problem here somewhere? We got a, do we have a problem right here? Now, look, we, are we on live stream? Is that what we're doing? Y'all can talk. I mean, it's not like, you know, um, you see any problem we've got to talk before we get out of this? This verse, <laughs> what is it? Ah. What is this? What's going on here? What is Joseph doing with a cup of divination? Uh, that's the occult. That's witchcraft. 
That's talking to demons and spirit guides. That's necromancy. That's talking to the dead. That's trying to foretell the future by spirits on the other side. What in the world? And we've got to solve this before we can move on because this just doesn't sound like Joseph, does it? Let me explain to you what a cup of divination is. It would have been, this was a silver cup. It would have been a cup that magicians or sorcerers would have had. It would have this probably was jewel encrusted and uh, was invaluable. You, you know, nobody could afford something like this. Where did Joseph get this? This most likely was part of what was there in the palace when he got there. Because after all, he's coming now from prison, remember? He's coming from this pit, this hole in the ground, this dungeon. And uh, they clean him up, wash him up, give him new clothes. He doesn't have anything, doesn't have any furniture, doesn't have any clothes, doesn't have anything. So it's probably part of what was there. But the cup of divination was this. They would pour wine in it or they would pour water in it. And then they would take oils essential oils and then they would they would put a little drop of oil in it and they would watch how that oil would spread on the top of the liquid water or wine and by that they would uh, portend to be able to know the future or would get a message from the netherworld or they would take that cup of uh, divination and put water in it or some other kind of liquid and they would throw jewels in it. And whichever way those jewels would sparkle, they would get a message from the netherworld. They would get a message from one of these spirits or they would be able to read something about the future. Now that's what this thing was. It's pure paganism. It's uh, dabbling with demons, it's messing with spirits, it's all those kind of things. And you say, what in the world is he doing with that? I- I'm going to tell you what I think it is. I think it's part of the ruse. I think it's part of the plan. Because if you look in verse 15, look at what he says when he gets those brothers back there to him. It, by the way, Joseph never had trouble getting a word from God. He never had trouble... Uh, God never had any problem speaking to Joseph. Joseph did not need any kind of outside interference like this whatsoever. I think this was part of the whole thing of the cover-up because in verse 15, what does it say? Do you guys not know that I could use divination? He's telling them, that's how I knew this cup was planted in your bags was by divination. He did not want to say, listen, I put it there or that the Lord our God told me to do that. He's using this as part of the ruse. Now, what's he doing? He's wanting to find out about these brothers. Do they still have the same spirit? Do they still have the same heart? Well, he doesn't know, but we know they've not repented of any of this stuff they've done. They've not confessed any of it or repented of any of it. So, They put this cup in that bag, and it happens to be in the bag of Benjamin. Well, look now at what they do. This guy comes. They are incensed. So he overtook them, verse 6, and spoke the words to them. And they said to him, why does my Lord speak such way? Hey, man, don't you remember we were just in there having lunch with the ruler of Egypt? And you're coming out here talking to us like this? We've got... We've got friends in high places. I know people. 
We've got connections. Why would you come out here talking to us like this? Far be it from your servants. We wouldn't do something like that. Look at verse 8. Behold, the money uh, which we found in the mouth of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Now, what he's saying is this. What they're saying is this, is we've got plenty of gold. We brought back the original gold that we gave you. We brought the gold to pay for all of this. We don't need anything you've got. We've got plenty. We're pretty wealthy on our own. Now, we're not, you know, the Pharaoh of Egypt wealthy, but we've got enough wealth of our own that we don't need to be taking your silver. We don't need your stuff. Now, do you begin to see this arrogance that's there, this pride that is there? Behold the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks we brought back to you. How could we steal silver? Why would we need your gold or silver? Verse 9, with whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. You put him to death. We're confident. No, none of us have done this. You find that, you can kill him, whoever it happens to be. And we also will be our Lord's slave. Not only can you kill him, we'll go back with you and we'll be slaves for the rest of our lives. Eh, pretty cocky, aren't they? They're pretty self-assured, pretty confident. Um, this self-confidence, this self-reliance, I get, now, just again, get this in your mind. Because you get, when you get a bunch of men together, what do they do? Act like five-year-olds. No. Well, listen. They're there. They're pretty arrogant. They're pretty cocky about this. So they hurried each man and lowered his sack to the ground. I bet they are just talking underneath their breath. What is this Egyptian doing down here talking to us? What, what's this, this knucklehead? What does he want? You know, he thinks we got, I don't need a blooming thing they got down there. And he, you can just hear them all just talking under their breath, talking to each other. And so they got down their sacks. He searched beginning with the old. He starts with Reuben. And he goes through all of Reuben's sacks. Then he gets to Simeon, and he goes through Simeon's sacks. And then he gets to Levi, and he goes through Levi's sacks. And can't you hear by this time, now it's no longer talking under their breath. <laughs> told you. You know, every time he goes through his we told you this. You know, you wasting our time, wasting your time. We didn't take this thing. We told you. You're not going to find that thing here. Gets through Judah's sack. And it just probably gets worse and worse. They probably, it sounds like you're at an NFL football game, you know, with what they're saying, how they're catcalling, all of that. He gets to Benjamin. He gets to the youngest boy's sack. And uh, as he gets to Benjamin's sack, he searches, beginning with the oldest, ending with the youngest. He opens up the sack of Benjamin, reaches down. He's got, you know, if you've seen these things, these Egyptians, they've got, they look like, you know, they look like Puff Daddy. You know, you got, you know, Puff Daddy here going through the bag with all this jewelry on and suddenly some of that jewelry clinks. And they all stop their talking and they look and out of that sack comes that silver goblet that they'd probably seen the ruler of Egypt drinking out of. And what do they do? Verse 13, they tore their clothes, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. Isn't that interesting? Now, that's what the Hebrews would do. They would grab it right here, and they would just rip. 
And they would bear their soul before God. That's essentially what they were doing. You did that in extreme grief. You did that in, in, in when you were in extreme hurt or sorrow or grief or, or distress. When you were under distress, it was a sign I just bear my soul to God. God, look at me. And all of these, I imagine it happened all about the same, the same time. All of them ripped their garments, never said a word. You don't see a man here saying, oh gosh, we're sorry. We shouldn't have said that to you. We shouldn't have talked like we talked. We should not have been so cocky. They don't say a word. They tear their garments and they get on their donkeys and they go back to the city. And so they get back to the city. And as they get back to the city, what in the world is going to happen in all of this? Well, verse 14, Judah and his brothers. Now, do you see how Judah now is put into the place that's kind of the leadership role. When Judah and his brothers came to the, to the house of Joseph, he was still there. He fell to the ground before him, and Joseph said to them, What is this deed you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? I can see what you guys are doing. That's what he was wanting to do. I can tell what's going on in your heart. I know what's going on in your mind. And Judah said, what can we say to you, my Lord? What can we speak? And how can um, we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. I'm going to give you a verse. Numbers 32, verse 23. You have sinned against the Lord. Be sure your sins will find you out. Now, I was in seminary before I knew that was in the Bible because I'd heard my mama say it to me so many times, I thought it was something my mama came up with. Be sure your sins will... No, uh, but she... Lord, if I had a dollar for every time my mama said that to me, I'd pay off the rest of the debt. Um, there you go. Now, I want to show you four aspects of forgiveness. Because what you just heard Judah do right here begins a confession of genuine repentance. And I don't want you to get by it. I don't want you to get lost in the story and let it get by. I'm going to give you four aspects of it. Number one, we're real repentance means treating the other person you sinned against with a genuine deep respect. Now, do you see what he does right here? He comes in and he calls him my Lord. He gives him respect. He gives him honor. They've sinned against um, Joseph here, but now hold on. Real repentance admits that you have no bargaining power. You see what he says? We can, how can we? We cannot justify ourselves. There's no way I can justify myself. We, we've sinned, we, we, we're showing you respect, we cannot justify what I did. Now, what do we generally do when we're caught in sin, try to justify ourselves? 
We try very hard to justify what we've done. Number three, real repentance submits itself to the person who's been wronged. Look back up in uh, verse 14. It says, when they came into the house of Joseph, uh, that they fell to the ground before him. And then back in verse 16, you come down here and they basically say, look, we, we are my Lord's slaves. Calls them Lord again. We're your slaves. They just humble themselves before the person that they've sinned against. Now let me show you the fourth thing. And the fourth thing is this. Real repentance confesses that all sin is ultimately against God. You see what he says there in verse 16? God has found out the iniquity of, of, of your servants. Um, I quote it again. Numbers uh, 32, 23. You have sinned against God. Your sins will find you out. That's tough. Does that bring a sin up in your mind? It does mine, but it's going to stay between me and the Lord. I don't have enough time to go any further with this. But what I want you to see is this. These guys now have begun the process of confession and repentance. It's just beginning here. I'm going to have to come back next week and uh, continue on from this. But I want you to listen. Far be it from me to do this. This is Joseph speaking. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Things just got infinitely worse. <laughs> These are the patriarchs. These are God's people. They're a mess, aren't they? These are God's people. God's people are a mess most of the time. That's why we need a shepherd. That's why a congregation needs a shepherd. Because God's people just are a mess. We're a forgiven mess, thank the Lord, but we still end up being a mess a lot of the time. These are God's 12 patriarchs right here. And from these patriarchs is going to come the whole nation. Now, I want you just to stop and think. Before God can use you, God will often have to break you. And he'll have to extradite, he'll have to exterminate, he'll have to eliminate the pride in our lives before he can use us. I, I talked a little bit about that Monday morning in my devotional on, on, the, on the Facebook deal. Is what God had done in my life a few years ago. You stop and think about these boys. These boys are going to be the nation. They're going to be the patriot, the fathers of the nation. Who's going to come out of this? Moses, Aaron, those are sons of Levi. Samson, he's a Danite. He comes out of Dan. And God has to deal with his pride, but thank the Lord, get to the last couple of verses of his story and he begins to call on the Lord and do what he'd never done, what God had waited for him to do all that time, but had never done. You've got, you've got Gideon that comes out of this. You, you've got Saul's going to come out of this. Out of Benjamin. Out of all these boys. Uh, you've got David's going to come out. 
that's out of Judah. You've got Solomon, that's out of Judah as well. He's going to come out of this. You, you go through the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them come out of these boys. You get to the New Testament, you're going to have Peter, you're going to have Matthew, you're going to have, you know, James and John. All of these are going to come out of these, these patriarchs, all of this. So God has to go and he has to take these 12 boys, well really, these 11 boys, and he has to bring them to the place where revival takes place in their heart through confession and repentance. And then out of that, he can build a nation through which will come the Messiah. Isn't that fascinating? Any questions?